Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 5, The Kings, the human ones. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can find Episode 1 easily at 15minutesontheway.com. Otherwise, brace yourself for a podcast in God's voice telling His side of your story. In last week's episode, before we stopped to notice the Promised Land border fulfillment, David was expressing a keen desire to build a house for me at least as nice as his. He wants to talk about building a house, so I am going to talk about building a house, just not the way he expects. Surprise, surprise, surprise. First, a reminder for David that when I tapped him for service, he was out following sheep around the fields. Now I've got armies and nations following him. He's a big boy now, and I am a big god. And if I'd have wanted something of more permanence in which to house the symbols of my presence with the nation of Israel, I could have made it for myself or certainly directed its construction with the same precision with which I outlined the tabernacle tent complex in all its detail. However, and this is a big however, I am willing to incorporate David's desire for this rather significant shift in my perceived locus with the people. I'm just not prepared to let him be the one to build me a house. We'll unpack that a bit further on. At this point in my chat with David, though, I do make him several promises in response to his proposal. These promises center first on David, then on his next-in-line son who will reign once David breathes no more, and then finally on their direct descendants with a particular eventual descendant in mind. Now, who can you think of a ways back in our discussion, a human being, that is, that I got this worked up over along these promise-making lines? Sure, I've made and kept promises to all kinds of folk to this point. Moses, Joseph, Joshua, Isaac, Gideon, Jacob. But David is about to get a covenantal treatment the likes of which only Abraham has experienced. I want to bring Abraham up right up front here, because the Abra plan resonates loud and clear in these promises I am about to make to David. Honestly, this is so important, and you know what I'm going to say. If you would light up your owner's manual platform now and follow along with me here in 2 Samuel 7, and if you're feeling kind of crazy, the parallel account in 1 Chronicles begins in chapter 17, but it tracks nearly word for word with the writer of Samuel with only minor omissions. Um, I say writer of Samuel because if you were thinking Samuel wrote Samuel, that would be pretty neat since it covers as much ground after he's dead as when he's alive. Getting back to David, Abraham, and the moment, go ahead and read from verse 1 of 2 Samuel 7. Once David proposes building me a house, I summarize things up to this point through the middle of verse 9. Then, in the middle of that sentence, I switch from past tense about what I have done 
into future tense into what I will do. Promises. Now, you can dice up the promises I'm about to make to David in a few different ways, but we are going to lump them into six discrete categories. The first promise out of my mouth is that I will make a great name for David. 1 Samuel 7, 9, if you haven't followed yet, we'll trust you to catch the following verses in Tom yourself without further nudges. My promising to make a great name for David should set your memory all a tingle since that's how I started with Abram, telling him I'd make his name great when we kicked off the Abra plan back in Genesis 12. And you can bet your allowance there's a connection between those promises then and these promises now. Then I promised David I'll provide a place for my people Israel, whose borders, of course, he secures by my hand. The land I'm promising to David is the promised land I promised to Abe again back in Genesis 12:2. You might want to put a scrap of paper or junk mail back there for now so you can flip back and forth. I really do want you to catch all the connections we are pointing out here. The third promise flows from the second one and is a function of it. Number three promises that I will give David rest from his enemies. That rest is the fait accompli of the previous promise, all of which resonates with my promise to Abram that I will make him a great nation and then give to that nation all the land of Canaan for its own. Genesis 12:2 and 17:18 for those promises. David is hearing just what you're hearing, if it's not too much to process at this time of day. He represents the capstone and fulfillment of a good part of my promises to Abraham, promises that many others have been working toward across the generations. And the parallels are far from over. The three promises we've just made to David link the present, his present, with the past and Abraham. The next three promises swing things into the future, starting with another nifty coincidence. In Genesis 17, I swore to Abraham that the promises I was making to him at the time, thus establishing the Abra plan, would hold and be carried through the generations by Abraham's offspring. Only instead of offspring, which is likely what's in your manual, the word I actually used was seed, zerah in Hebrew, literally his genetic material. I know you remember this because we made a big deal about it at the time. Well, guess what the next promise to David turns on? Yep, David's seed that shall come forth from his body in the original Hebrew text. This is not an indicator of obsession with the reproductive process on my part, folks. It's a word embedded in both places to again light up the link between these two covenants, the covenant I made with Abraham and the one I'm making right now with the giant killer. So I remind David that he started all this business by offering to build me a house, when I say that instead I'm building him a house, and that my fourth promise to him is that this seed of his is going to inherit the throne from him, and I'm going to make sure his son's kingdom is a healthy one. I'm telling David he needn't fear that his family will go the way of Saul and Jonathan, that I'm going to hang in there with his boy even if he screws up on occasion. 
Then I make promise number five, which is that once he's all grown up and enthroned, I am going to allow that seedling to build that house for me that David's so keen on at the moment. David won't get to build it for me, but his son will. Most of you already know that seedling is going to be Solomon, but that's actually beside the point right now. All these promises are obviously good stuff, but the final promise is the real climax. The final promise does sound quite a bit like what I've been saying about the seed that's going to be building the temple for me. However, just to make sure David and everyone else whoever hears about it gets the point, I pull this bit out and plant it at the end as a standalone promise to make sure no one misses it. Here's what I say to David in 2 Samuel 7.16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Did you recognize the clincher word in there? I said it twice. Did you hear it? It's not house or kingdom or throne this time, though those obviously are crucial to the promise. No, the word that completely changes the landscape of the future. One last try. You got it? The word that carries my little moment here with David right into your lap right here right now is this one. This one little word. Forever. It thrills us to think about all that happens in that word as I say it in promise to David. Forever. First of all, no line of monarchy lasts forever, right? A family may rule long enough to get the word dynasty tacked onto the end of their name, but in time, something happens and another house assumes the throne, if the throne even exists any longer. Go ahead and do some side research on Chinese or European royal houses to really get this point. The word forever does not fit in any sentence with a human monarch or family thereof as its subject. In order for this promise to be true, about David's house and kingdom and throne lasting forever, it is going to have to be supernaturally fulfilled. Astonishingly good luck, sensational governing, and weak neighbors might buy a few centuries for a ruling family, but not an eternity. In the word forever, my promises focused on David's life and immediate family shift away from these more adjacent issues onto universal ones. The word forever pivots the Abra plan from a focus entirely on the nation of Israel into a future that will reach both you and your descendants, your own seed, if you will. In the word forever, my promise to Abram back in Genesis 12:3 that all families of the earth will be blessed by his seed is propelled into eternity, into all generations that will ever live. We have been working out the Abra plan step by step along the way, and here in this moment with David, we set the course on how the plan will reach its ultimate fulfillment. Rather, we set the course on who will be the ultimate fulfillment of the Abra plan. It will be someone who was a direct descendant of David and thus of Abraham, 
placed on the throne as king of my people in a supernatural way in order to satisfy the forever clause of the promise I now make to David. The house David wants to build for me will crumble and fall. The house I am going to build for David will never fail. There are whispers pointing to this from very early on, even back in Genesis in Jacob's final words to his sons. He tells Judah, father of the tribe from which David and his seed will spring, that the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations be his. That's Genesis 49.10. Jacob's prophetic words do not point to David, son of Judah. They point through and past him to the supernatural son of David I have just promised, one who is able to reign forever. And don't miss the reference to the nations there, also an Abraplan trigger if ever there was one. Israel asked for a king for ages, and I said no for a very long time. I finally let them have it, and although things are pretty rosy right now with David, the sum effect of human kings in Israel is not going to be a good one. That's why I said no for that very long time. Like a father who knows a child will only learn something the hard way, though, I relented and allowed it. Now I am even using the human monarchy for far more than simply teaching a lesson. Far more indeed. You see, the theme of kingship has never left my radar, though it may have dropped off yours, which hasn't been easy given my bringing it up so often. In one fell swoop here, I take the human monarchy, which I was loath to allow in Israel, and I graft it into the Abra plan, making it my own. If they're going to insist on having a king, then I'm going to use their having a king in ways they're not intending or even imagining. Human kings are still a bad idea. They're still human, every one of them, and will fail on multiple levels, every one of them. However, now that we have to put up with them, we are going to use them to further the Abra plan. Therefore, in this covenant with David, we incorporate the monarchy into the way in which we shall rescue the entire human race. So, before we close, of course, there's a pretty decent object lesson for your life here, friend. Don't you just love these? I sure do. There are things you can think of, even a few if you try, that I have managed to use for your great good that were in fact not good things at all in their beginning, things that were downright rebellious and sinful on your part. But now, see what work we have done using all things, including the good, the bad, and the extremely poor judgment, moving things forward in your life in ways you never expected. It's one of our favorite things to do, turn the decidedly bad into the surprisingly good for you, in you, and through you. It's because I never stop loving you like I never stopped loving Israel, even though they kept insisting on a human king. 
Just like a normal, relatively well-adjusted human father never stops loving his child, even though they keep insisting on a drum set. I know in the end there's nothing you can do that I am not going to be able to use to your benefit. That briefly used, now abandoned drum set can be repurposed into an assortment of tables, clocks, waste baskets, and paper towel holders. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. Then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. You can find a link to our Patreon page there as well. We're sponsored by the Oakhaven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Oleksandr Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Eicher designs our website graphics, kennyeicherart.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.